Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast that will bring you the message and hope with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today you will listen to Pastor Dave Johnson. Pastor Dave has been in a series in the book of Mark, so make sure you listen all the way through. And now, here's Pastor Dave. We are in the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles, please open it up to Mark chapter 2. It's actually the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 that we're going to be at today. So go ahead and do that. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. There's so much to say um, on just three little words that Jesus uses today. And we're going to get into that. Jesus uses these three little words, and these three little words are shocking to his community. These three little words will upset his entire ministry. They will get people to want to kill him. They will get a high priest at one point to tear his robe and say, what else do we need to hear? Go kill him. These three little words. And they were not, I love you, if that's what you were thinking. He does love you. But those were not the three little words. It occurred to me that there's oftentimes two reactions to Jesus in the Gospels. There's either a group of people that follow him closely and praise him for all that Jesus does, or they want to crucify him. There's kind of two reactions. There's two camps to Jesus. I talked about not getting in camps, but Jesus all of a sudden is going through his, doing his ministry, and all of a sudden camps are forming. Do we love Jesus? Is he the Savior, or are we going to kill him? And uh, that's what we're going to see today. We've been in chapter 1 and 2 and before, and let me just give you a quick recap because I want you to see the drama building in the book of Mark. There's so much drama that is building in this book. First and foremost, right away in Mark chapter 1, Mark comes out with Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. He doesn't say those words, those are my words, but what he uses are passages out of the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah showing that Jesus is Yahweh. And he quotes them about Jesus, saying that Jesus is this Yahweh incarnate, and this is good news. It's the beginning of good news. He's a new Moses leading us to a new creation, and everyone's excited about this. And the second week, we immediately see Jesus go into the desert, and he overcomes evil, and we're like, all right, Jesus is overcoming evil. This is great. And then what he does after that is he goes on this crazy power deal, like good power, like he begins healing people of their diseases. He casts demons out of people in the synagogue. Jesus, it's like he walks into the world and evil can't stand it. They have to go away and sickness can't stand it. It has to be healed. This is Jesus going into the world doing this. All of a sudden, He's doing things like giving a voice to the marginalized and the poor in the community. He's giving a voice to the hated in the community too. Last week we looked at Jesus' interaction with this guy named Levi who was a tax collector. Who, by the way, I forgot to tell this story last week. I want to tell it real fast. I know. I got a microphone. I get to do what I want. That's not true. That's not true. Tax collectors are so hated and the Roman world in Egypt is one of the areas where we find tax receipts still, by the way. They still exist from the Roman time because Egypt was dry. And so you have these environments where people put a bunch of stuff into jars, and in Egypt, guess what? Poof. You know, you're digging in a hole and you find these records. Um, recently, I think in the last like 50 years, there was a tax record unearthed from an Egyptian city where they found one tax receipt, and it just showed the amount, and the reason was extortion. That's it. I know. Isn't that great? Like, this is how much tax collectors are hated, and all of a sudden, Jesus is having dinner with them. He's, having, he's calling them to himself. 
And so Jesus is upsetting the social balance, the spiritual balance. All of a sudden, Jesus is going into the world, and the whole world is being flipped upside down. Jesus walking into the world, you know, he already goes into this one Sabbath story, and he heals a man who is possessed by demons. And today, we're going to get into two Sabbath stories where Jesus just upsets him even more. It's almost like Jesus is progressively revealing himself so that the people could handle it. Because if he did it all at once, their, their minds would just explode. So we're in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and we're just going to look at, at the first five verses here. It says this, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even, even of the Sabbath. So this first Sabbath we're going to look at today, Jesus is just eating things of grain, off the heads of grain off the, the grain fields. He's gleaning. This is what he's doing. He's, he's following biblical law. And he and his companions were, were pretty much poor. So they were eating off the edges of the field where they were allowed to eat. And see, you have to understand that this was like breaking a huge law back in those days because the Sabbath was huge. The Talmud describes the Sabbath as a holy ordinance to God and ordains that whoever observed the Sabbath, whoever observes the Sabbath becomes a partner with God in the creation of the world and brings salvation to the world. That's what the Talmud says. And th these are uh, documents that the Jews followed at G during Jesus' time. So whoever kept the Sabbath, was a partner with God in the salvation of the world. And so if they see somebody breaking the law, then all of a sudden it's like, you're not interested in saving the world. You don't care about Israel. You don't care about us. You don't even care about God. And, and this is what they're saying to Jesus. Like, what are you doing breaking this law? This was, and, and Jesus also kind of claimed to be a rabbi, Right? So here's this guy, here's this man of God going around, and he has disciples. It's no small thing. He's got disciples. He's walking around. He's just picking off heads of grain and eating them. It's not work. It's not a big deal. It's, it's really not a huge deal. See, in secular societies, we don't understand this as much because we don't necessarily have sacred days anymore. There used to be sacred days, right? There used to never be anything on Sundays. You would never have a soccer game on a, a Sunday. That's just crazy talk, right? You would never have a baseball game or anything else happen on Sundays. I mean, movie theaters were shut down in the 50s. You never did anything other than go to church and worship God two times a day on a Sunday, morning service and evening service. That's what you did. And in, we are no longer in that society. We are now in a secular society. And so we don't understand this whole idea of sacred time as much. See, in every other religion, they have sacred places, but in, in Judaism, there's sacred time, and that's the seventh day and the festivals. So when Je Jesus is breaking this Sabbath, he then does something that's even more offensive. 
he compares himself to the greatest king that Israel has ever had. All of a sudden, that would perk the ears of the Pharisees. They're like, wait a second. So now you're breaking the Sabbath and you're comparing yourself to King David. Because his, his reply was, King David did it, why can't I? And so it's like, whoa, who is this guy? What is this guy doing? He's perking the ears of the Pharisees as, as, as comparing himself to the greatest king that Israel has ever had. And then he said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, humans were not made to keep the Sabbath rules. The Sabbath was made to bless humanity. And that's, the re- that's literally what the Sabbath is made for. Jesus is absolutely right. But in their fear of breaking the Sabbath, they set up these rules and laws, and the rules and laws became their God. Not, the actual, not actually in embracing and discovering God on the Sabbath. The rules over the years had turned the Sabbath into a burden, and Jesus restored the true meaning of the Sabbath. Then we get to the verse that would probably make everybody listening completely uncomfortable. And Jesus was never afraid to do this. He was never afraid to make his hearers uncomfortable. And he says this, The Son of Man, those are those three little words I was talking about that get him in so much trouble, is the Lord even of the Sabbath. You can't even state how massive this sentence is. This is massive. Jesus calling himself the Son of Man is huge, and it's a massive claim in the book of Mark. And so today we're going to kind of step out of the book of Mark and, and still finish chapter 3 a little bit. It, it, you know, we're going to go out of the book of Mark a little bit, but first what I wanted to do is show you, and these are in all your notes, all the places that the Son of Man is used in the book of Mark. It's huge language and a massive claim. The first one that we didn't talk about too much was in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, and this is a fill-in, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. That's what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Two, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We just talked about that right now. And then he says, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die and raise again. Huh. Then it says, if anyone is ashamed of the Son of Man, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. Then it says, the Son of Man came to serve and not to, and, and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. It says, woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. And then this last one that he says is so shocking that this is where they kind of tear the robes and say, okay, this guy's got to die. They will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud, sitting at the right hand of God. If you're not in a first century context, you might go, who cares that he calls himself the Son of Man? After all, the phrase Son of Man just means the human one. So what Jesus is practically saying here is that, like, hey, the human one will come and, and come in the right hand, uh, instead of the right hand of God. Like, Right now, if you don't understand that context, then you're probably thinking, who cares that Jesus called himself the Son of Man? But Jesus cared and did this intentionally. 82 times between the four Gospels, Jesus will call himself the Son of Man. He uses this phrase all the time, so much so that people wanted to kill him. So what's so charged about this phrase? So like I said, today I want to step out a little bit of the book of Mark 
and talk specifically about this phrase, the Son of Man, because I think that as we get it more, as we understand what it means that Jesus called himself the Son of Man, it challenges our faith to ask the question, do we have faith in the Son of Man? Do we believe that Jesus actually is the Son of Man? Do we have faith that he is the one who is actually coming in the clouds? And so we're going to talk about this because this is amazing and it's explosive. And I don't know, I nerd about, out about this every time that we talk about it, that he says this. It's incredible. So um, if you want, you can flip with me. If not, we'll be up on the screens. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Most biblical threads start right here, by the way. So you're like, Pastor Dave has preached about this verse 10,000 times. Yes, that's true, because most biblical threads start right here. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. Let us make mankind in our image, I'm sorry. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over all the livestock, over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to him, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Rule over all the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there's two key things to remember here, okay? And maybe you want to write these down in your notes, they're, but they're simple. Two key things to remember. One, God gives his image to all humanity. This is what he's doing in the garden. He's creating humankind after himself. And two, he gives us a job. We're to rule over creation. That's what humanity is supposed to do. So he literally says, all the sea creatures, the birds, the sky, the, the living creatures, like you're in charge of them. Go home and tell that to your dog. My dog would be like, nope, I'm in charge of you, buddy. I'm like, get off my bed. And he just looks at me and he's like, I'm sleeping here. I don't care. That's my dog. I'm not doing very good at ruling over the creatures. I'll tell you that right now. Now, why would God do this? Why would God create human partners to rule over all of creation? Can't God just do that himself? Of course he can. He's God. He doesn't need us. He just, with one swipe of his finger, he could rule over all of humanity, all the animals, over all everything. He could do it himself, but God values a human family. He wants to build the human family. He wants to build us into a, his family. And he starts with the first man and the first woman, and they get to experience and rule over all of creation in the garden in Eden. They get to rule over all of it. They get to be in charge of all the animals and all that stuff. They, they get to rule with God in the shadow of the tree of life. But and I think I've probably laid this out for you once before, but I want to lay it out for you one more time. Of course, the first sin could be seen a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that I think is really important to see, especially in this context of understanding what does it mean that Jesus called himself the Son of Man, is that an animal rules over a human. That's what happens in the first sin. Now, let me read this to you. Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. He's an animal. The Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of the tree in the garden? Okay, so again, is the, is the serpent an animal or a human? <laughs> That's an animal. God called us to rule over the animals. And at the very end, 
or at the very end of this sermon, and, and I don't even need to wait to the end of it to ask the question, and this is a fill-in, are you ruling over the beast of sin in your life, or is it ruling over you? You know, that's what the first sin is, is that they were called to do a job, they were given the, the, what they needed, God's image, to do the job, and they forsake that, they forsook it, I guess is the proper word, and they allowed this animal to rule over them. And so all of a sudden, from this point on, the Bible doesn't talk anymore about this serpent. You, you would be hard-pressed to find this serpent the rest of the Bible, because the Bible begins to use different language for it. In the very next chapter, the language that it uses for this serpent is that it's like a beast. It's crouching waiting to rule over you, waiting to have you. And he talks about Cain and Abel this way, that sin is like this crouching deal that wants to pounce on you and take you down. It's called a beast, really. And so from there on forward, sin would be known as beastly. Adam and Eve would abandon the tree of life for the tree of knowledge of good and evil all because instead of doing their job and ruling over creation, they were ruled by it. So it was after the sin of Adam and Eve that God made some very specific curses and promises. And some of these are really cryptic. But one of the curses that he said and promised was this. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is one of the very first places in the Bible that we actually get a prophecy of Jesus coming. That because somehow the offspring, a human one, a son of man, will come. And one day, he will be the one who is able to crush this beast of sin. He will stomp out this serpent. One day, there's a human one who could do that all that Adam and Eve could not do in the garden. One day, There'll be a new man, a new human, a son of man, because he'll be a son of, of Eve somehow, right? So what God is saying is that there's always going to be a, a struggle between the serpent and humanity, and that one day a snake crusher is coming. One day. And this sets up the question in the Old Testament. Who is it? Who's the snake crusher? Who's the one who can overcome this serpent? And if you look through the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of really good candidates. Maybe it's Moses. Oh, man, he killed a guy in the desert and buried him. Then he struck a rock when he wasn't supposed to. If I had $1,000 for every time I struck a rock for, you know. Is that how that phrase goes? If I had 1000 No. If I had a penny, I can't remember how that phrase goes. I don't think I've ever struck a rock. That's my point. I've never struck a rock when God asked me specifically not to because God has never asked me that. But he's like, maybe it's Moses. Like, he's a good guy. Maybe it's Noah. Maybe it's, there's all these people who it could be. Maybe it's Gideon. Like, he's this weak guy, and, and now he's fighting off the Midianites. Or, or maybe, it, maybe it's King David. He beats up Goliath. This guy's awesome. He's doing well in his life. He's a man after God's own heart. But then, bam, you see the serpent of sin come alive in his life. And he ends up having an affair with Bathsheba and killing, who, by the way, is his friend, Uriah. That's his friend, one of his mighty men. It's in the book of Chronicles. So he ends up sleeping with his friend's wife and then killing his friend. He's not the guy. 
That, that invisible serpent of sin still has its, really has its grip on the heart of humanity. And, and it just goes like this from king to king to king. It's like, who's the guy? Who could be the new son of man? And, and then you get to Daniel chapter 7, in which, by the way, uh, many people read the book of Daniel, and they love chapters 1 through 6. Chapter 1 through 6 are great. There's like all these cool stories. They're eating vegetables at first. I like that one. I don't eat meat, so I, and I like that one. You know, then, then there's like all these all these like King Nebuchadnezzar turns into this like hairy beast and eats off the ground. And there's Daniel in the lion's den. There's this invisible hand that does writing, like all kinds of cool stories. But then you get to chapter seven and most people stop reading because chapter seven is difficult. You get to chapter seven, it says this, in the first year of, of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind and he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great seas. Four great beasts, each different from others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. So I'm going to pause right there. Most people read this and go, what? And move on. And I totally get it. It's, it's very cryptic. It's something called apocalyptic literature, something that we're not used to. So let me just give you the quick Twitter version understanding of this so you understand it. Daniel's dream sees four beasts come out of this chaotic waters in the ocean. Remember, what does a beast mean in the Bible? This sinful human. So he sees these four sinful humans, the one who are ruled by the serpent, come out of the water, and they're the leaders of these nations, these four nations who will just crush people. And so Daniel sees these four beasts coming, these, these sinful humans, these sinful kingdoms. And, and you remember, by the way, like, there's a reason why in the book of Revelation where it talks about the mark of the beast. What is the beast? Oh, yeah, it's a sinful kingdom. There's a reason why it talks like this in the Bible. And the question is, who could ever stop the serpent? Is this, is, is this sin and evil going to reign forever? Who could crush it? Who could stop it? There's literally these beasts coming up out of the waters that are going to devour us. So later in this same dream... Daniel has, he, he sees the Ancient of Days, and so you jump all the way down to verse 13, and it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Whoa! Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Whoa. That's what the Son of Man is out of Daniel chapter 7. He, Daniel has a vision where there's a new human coming that sits at the right hand of God, coming in the clouds, that, that literally has all authority, all dominion, all power, and that could actually crush that serpent of sin, who could actually make it go the other way. And what do we see Jesus doing? First thing we see Jesus do is go into the wilderness and defeat sin. He defeats evil, the temptations of evil. The next thing he does is he, he, he kicks out demons. The next thing he does is says the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sin. 
Jesus is trying to make it clear to everyone that he is the guy Daniel 7 is talking about. He's the one that Genesis 3 is talking about, that he really is the son of man. He really is this new human one who can crush the serpent of sin. He really is this human one who could build in this everlasting dominion and power and have a kingdom that will never pass away. He is the human one that will be called the son of man. And it's no wonder that Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I mean, he sits at the right hand of the Father. Or that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Or that one day you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And the religious people freak out. All the religious people around Jesus freak out when Jesus talks about this. Why? Because he's like, look who I am. I'm the one who can actually break this power of sin, and it's a huge claim. So I don't think it's any shock what happens next. Mark 3, 1 through 2. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus says, why, why, or why are they looking for a reason to accuse, right? Will Jesus be stirring the pot or is he, he's calling himself the Son of Man. He's continually doing this. What is going on? So the Pharisees are probably thinking, we need to get this crazy guy out of our synagogue, this Jesus character. But then there's a shift in the Pharisees. Jesus is eating with sinners, and he's healing on the Sabbath. In verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Did you catch that last line? They began to plot about how they might kill Jesus because he was healing people, because he liked to call himself this little phrase, the Son of Man, which they knew. They had this theological understanding, Daniel chapter 7, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. They have this theological understanding. This guy is really claiming to be the Son of Man, the human one who has the ability to overcome all sin and sit at the right hand of God. So I want to... I know I've been talking for a while and we had other things happen earlier. I, I'm going to begin to invite the band actually to come back up because we're going to just wrap this up here in, in one minute. There's an irony happening in this passage. Jesus asked, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? And Jesus does good on the Sabbath and the Pharisees go to the Herodians, these partisans of Herod, to plot to kill Jesus. And they do evil on the Sabbath. So they're breaking the Sabbath as well. But all through it is this question, will you really believe that Jesus is the Son of Man? I mean, the, there, there's these two camps now forming around Jesus. One camp has the faith and actually believes that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the one from Daniel chapter 7 that's coming in the clouds. He is the one that forgives sins. He is the one that has all power and dominion and authority over all kingdoms. And they're seeing Jesus in front of him and bowing down and saying, you are the son of man and you have all this authority. And the other response is to kill him. 
So I want to invite you and ask the question. There's a couple of questions I just want to leave dangling out in front of you today. Well, the first question is a question I already asked. Is that beast of sin, does it have, or does it have its power over you? Does it have authority over you or do you have authority over it? And the only way you get authority over it is the Son of Man. Because the Son of Man is the only one who has the ability and the power to crush it. You can't do it. You need the Son of Man in your life to crush the power of sin. So who's in charge in your life? Is it the serpent or is it the Son of Man? And secondly, as we wrap this up today, do you have that faith to believe that Jesus actually is the Son of Man? That he actually does have dominion and power and authority over your life. That he actually does have dominion, power, and authority over the nations. That he actually can forgive your sin. That he actually can heal you. That he can actually make you into a new person. Do you have that faith or is Jesus just a good guy? Do you have the faith that Jesus is the, the God who could crush the serpent? All that Adam couldn't be. Do you have that faith in Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you need to put that faith of yours into Jesus as the Son of Man because no matter how hard you try to crush the serpent of sin, it'll be there until the Son of Man stomps it out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we contemplate that you are the Son of Man, you are the only one who's got the authority and the power and the ability to stomp out sin in our lives, to make us new, to forgive our sin. Lord, we put our faith in you, and we ask that you would do that, that you would stomp out sin in people's lives here today. Maybe there's someone here who simply needs to say, Lord, I need you to stomp out the sin that that just encircled my heart. I need you to break that power. Only the Son of Man could do that. So, Lord, would you do that today? Would you make us new today? Would you help us to see you for all who you are today? Lord, you are the Son of Man, the one who comes on the clouds, the one who makes all things new. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast with Pastor Dave Johnson. If you are hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We hope you enjoyed this new episode, and if you did, please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information on the ministries at REC, check out our social media pages. The links are always in the description.